Well, hello, everybody. Today, we are continuing our series about the credibility gap, the perceptions that many people outside the church have about the church, and often those negative perceptions that stand in the way of people even having a desire to know more about Jesus. And so this is an intense topic. I will be the first to admit that. This is intense and it's uncomfortable, but it's one that I think is very important for us to, to talk about and to wrestle with as a church. Before we dive in today, I just want to remind you of two things that I said last week in our intro to this series. Number one, this series is not at all about pointing the finger. We're not pointing the finger at any other churches or any other Christians. This is about a look in the mirror. This is for us to understand how Christians are perceived in our culture so that we can do better. It's about us taking responsibility for how we can close the credibility gap in our community, in the relationships that we have, so that people can come to know Jesus. The second thing I want to remind you of is that, yeah, these are touchy topics, and they can be a little uncomfortable to hear sometimes, and as a result, we are going to be tempted to draw back, to, uh, to shut down, to put up walls. We're going to be defensive sometimes. It's just natural, but I'm going to encourage us all to keep our eyes and our minds open as we go through this because, because, again, if we can take this seriously and begin to close that credibility gap, it means that those that we love in our world can come to know Jesus, and that's what this is all about. That's what we long for more than anything, isn't it? So that's why we're talking about this, and, uh, and yeah, I say we dive in and keep talking. Last week, we talked about the topic of hypocrisy, the perception of hypocrisy in the church, and today, we're going to talk about the perception of idolatry, and I'll explain why I'm using that word, because nobody would necessarily call it that, but we'll get into that in a moment. So go ahead and grab your Bible. We're going to dive straight into Galatians chapter 4 uh, for our passage today. Uh, we're going to be in the New Living Translation. If you're watching online, hello. Feel free to grab your own Bible there, and, uh, and we're going to read this passage. Uh, now, in Galatians, the, Galatia was a region in kind of southeastern Turkey today. Uh, it was a Roman province, but the, there were a lot of Gentiles in this area, and this is one of the first areas that, that Paul really started to establish a very Gentile-centric church. And in, in chapter 3, Paul is reiterating to the Gentile, uh, to the, the Gentile believers in, in Galatia what it means to follow Jesus. He's essentially saying, look, when you start following Jesus, your entire life is transformed. You're a different person. Your identity, all the things that, that used to define you, they all kind of fade away and take a secondary place to the name of Jesus in your life. And yet, and we'll get into this here, it seems as if the Gentiles were falling back into some of their old patterns in Galatia. So let's read uh, what Paul says to them, starting in verse one of chapter four. And this is a bit of a longer passage, so um, just, yeah, pay, pay attention and listen up as we, as we read this whole passage. Okay, Paul says, think of it this way. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children, those children are not much better off than slaves until they grow up, even though they actually own everything that their father had, because they have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age the father set. And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law, God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. 
And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Before you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to so-called gods that do not even exist. So now that you know God, or should I say, now that God knows you, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless spiritual principles of this world? You're trying to earn favor with God by observing certain days or months or seasons or years. I fear for you. Perhaps all my hard work with you is for nothing. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to live as I do in freedom from these things. For I've become like you Gentiles, free from those laws. Okay, so that's a lot, I know. Uh, but Paul is talking here uh, about something that I would call idolatry. He says his readers were once slaves to so-called God, in verse eight, so-called gods that do not even exist. And then he asks them in verse nine, he says, why, why do you wanna go back, become slaves once more to the weak and useless spiritual principles of this world? Now, another way to translate spiritual principles is uh, more literally elemental spirits. Paul's readers, in other words, according to Paul, are worshiping, submitting themselves to idols, idols. Now, Paul here is tapping into a very long thread of, of a biblical idea that actually goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. What he's tapping into is the reality that, and this may come as a surprise to you, uh, that idolatry is actually the chief sin of humanity in the Bible. Like, it's the worst, the number one worst sin of the Bible. And I know that might come as a surprise to us because we don't talk about it a lot, but there's a reason why it is the first commandment of the Ten Commandments, not to have idols. So that's what he's tapping into here, and I think it's important for us to understand why. In the ancient world, and you probably know all this, but in the ancient world, just about every culture had a pantheon of gods to worship, right? They were, there were fertility gods and gods of power and war and gods of wealth, gods of beauty, you name it. Pretty much every aspect of human existence that you could think of, well, there was a God for that. There was a God for that. And the, the basic idea that kind of was at the, the foundation of their worldview was that if you submitted yourself to those gods or, you know, gave up part of your life for them, well, then you'd get what you want. You'd get good crops or success in battle or pregnancy or, or whatever, you name it. So these were, these were spiritual forces they understood to be at work in the world that you had to rely on day in and day out to get what you needed. And it, frankly, there was no question about this. Everybody understood that this was how the world worked. And so, you know, you just had to maintain your allegiance to the gods or bad things would happen. Everybody knew that. So that was normal. So you can understand why these new Gentile believers in Galatia might be tempted to kind of, you know, drift back to some of their old patterns because their old idolatrous ways because everybody else was doing this. This was absolutely commonplace and you would have been seen as completely out of your mind if you weren't doing those things and going to the temple and making the sacrifices to the gods, etc. So they started slipping back into these old habits and, and really, you know, what could it hurt? What could it hurt just kind of hedging your bets a little bit and, and making a, you know, going to some festival of Aphrodite? Like, is it such a big deal? Well, Paul seems to think it is. Look at how insistent he is in verse 12. He says, I plead with you. I plead with you to live in freedom from these things. So let's talk about this. Why is, is this such a big deal to Paul? Why is this to him such a massive, massive problem? Why did did he think, and why do I think, that idolatry is the chief sin of the Bible, the ultimate sin. 
Well, let's talk about that because it has to do with the, the core brokenness of our world. Again, it goes back to the very beginning. In Genesis, the story of Genesis, God creates humanity with a very specific purpose, and we see this purpose throughout Scripture. God created humans to share in his rule and, and stewardship of the earth, of creation. Okay, we were put here with a, with a, with a vocation, a job, to be the caretakers of creation. In other words, we were God's representatives. Uh, it was his rule of, of the earth was meant to be lived out through us. It was our vocation to help creation thrive. But as you know in the story, pretty much immediately, we kind of lost the plot a little bit because not only did we start trashing the place and, and hurting one another, but we started to actually worship created things. We worship the stuff of this earth. For example, uh, I'm not talking just about wooden idols, by the way. I'm talking about ideas and powers and principles that were meant to be part of this earth. For example, money and wealth. Money and wealth is just like, I mean, back then it's just metal and paper, right? It's, it's not really anything. It's just part of this earth. And yet, how long did it take before money and wealth had become elevated to a place of, of almost divinity where we would, would, would sacrifice ourselves to it and do whatever wealth demanded of us? I mean, is it really so surprising that the ancients decided to start giving some of these, these concepts names like the god Pluto or, or Mammon? Like, or another example, we invented, humanity invented warfare as a way to, to you know, fulfill our lust for power. And before long, power started calling the shots in how we interacted with one another. Well, introducing the gods of power, Marduk and Baal and Ares, right? They just personified this, this idea that was ruling us and driving us in so many ways. I could go on. Food, sex, fame, you, you name it. These, these are the things of this earth, the things of creation that we were meant to rule that had suddenly become our masters, Suddenly, these, these created things, we were turning to them for provision, for safety, for security, for meaning in our life. So yeah, it's no wonder that the ancients decided to personify these, these elemental spiritual principles and give their lives to them. So hopefully, by now, you can see why idolatry is just the ultimate subversion of God's intentions for creation, right? Because we were meant to rule the world, but we let the world rule us. It makes sense why Paul makes such a big deal out of this with the Galatian church. Because the whole point of Jesus' death and resurrection was to set us free from that kind of enslavement. We're not meant to be enslaved. Now, you hear all that, and it may be easy and tempting to think, okay, well, interesting that they dealt with that back then, but idolatry is not really an issue anymore because, right, we don't, have, we don't have temples, we don't have, you know, carved figurines and pantheons of gods and all that. We don't have shrines in our homes for the most part. But, and I think you can guess where I'm going with this, when we realize what idolatry is really all about, submitting ourselves to man-made things and ideas when idolatry is about pledging allegiance to the stuff of this world, hmm, suddenly it becomes clear that this is not just an ancient problem. Idolatry is the chief sin of humanity, and we all do it. We all do it and fall into it. 
Look at this list uh, of some just ideas. I just randomly thought of these, uh, just a few ones. Wealth, power, security, fame, pleasure, success, and happiness. Now, look at that list, and I want you to ask yourself, what would you sacrifice for those things? What would you give up in your life? Uh, Or, you know, how often do these things call the shots in your decisions? How often are you doing what they demand of you because of how badly you want them, right? You think about that, you realize, okay, we may have fewer temples and carved figurines, but we are no less idolatrous than our ancient ancestors. We just don't call it that. It's just a new name. Well, here's why that's a problem. If you can't already guess, here's why this is the problem. Because you cannot worship idols and serve God. You, you, can't, you can't do both. You cannot, cannot give your life to idols and also obey the Father. You cannot do both. One of them is going to have to take precedence. Jesus said it himself when he was talking about the idol of money. He said, no one, no one can serve two masters. For you're going to hate the one and love the other, or you're going to be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. The same principle applies to power. You can't dedicate your life to being the top dog and also a servant of the king. You can't, chew, you can't do both at the same time. Same thing with success or fame, right? You, you can't give everything that you have to be noticed and celebrated and also give everything you have to be a, someone who loves like Jesus. You gotta choose. No one can serve two masters. Now, before we know Christ, we don't really have an option here, okay? Before Jesus is in the picture, Paul says in verse eight, before you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to so-called gods that do not even exist. So when Christ comes into the picture, or before Christ comes into the picture, those idols, those man-made things, they're all that really exist, right? So why not give your life to sex and fame and wealth and power? Because, yeah, why not? That's all there, there is. But then... Jesus enters the picture and things start to change. Jesus died on that cross to bring an end to the power of those idols over us. He, he, he opened the door for us to live another way, to make a different choice. When we surrender our lives to Jesus, actually give over our, our control of our life to him instead of to idols, we start to recapture the vocation that we were meant to have we start, start ruling over creation the way that God intended, bringing life and creativity and wholeness and peace in his name. You see, following Jesus, surrendering to him, it starts to put things back in order. We stop letting creation rule us and we begin to rule creation in his name. Does that make sense? For example, when Christ is in our lives and, and he's first in our lives, money, it's just a... It's just a tool that we use, right? It's just something that we use for whatever ends he has in mind. Uh, power. We don't have to go looking for power and try to scrape and, 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 you know, try to grab power because we don't need it. It's his power working through us. Or, or you know, fame or, or success or whatever. They lose their luster for us when Christ is first because we start measuring the meaning and the value of our lives in different ways. It's not dependent on the the affirmation of others for whether or not we have value. You get the idea. 
As Paul says in Galatians 4, we used to live as slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world, but now, now Christ has set us free from those things. So, that's what idolatry is all about in the Bible. That's how I understand it. That's how I see it. We're actually going to talk more about it in our Easter series in, in, a, in well, a few weeks. And uh, I think it's really important for us to understand how crucial this idea is. But, I'm sure you're wondering, how do, exactly does this apply to the credibility gap? How does this apply to the perception that people have of the church? Well, again, we're talking about uh, things that people see in the church, whether they're completely accurate or not, but things that they see in the church that keep them from wanting to engage with Jesus. So what do people see when they look at the church? And again, this is, this is I've been hearing this and reading this and talking to people for a long time, and so I'm just kind of bringing some of the observations that I've heard uh, that people have about the church, and this is what they see. This is what they see. Uh, what non-Christians often see when they look at the church is Christians who say that our allegiance is to Jesus and his kingdom above all. But we bow to these man-made idols no differently than anyone else. Uh, for example, they see megachurches that sure seem to be in it for the money. They see Christians who are more obedient to political ideologies than to the word of God. They see churches wanting more power in our nation. They see Christians who cry foul anytime their personal success is threatened. And they see church leader after church leader after church leader after church leader being exposed for sexual infidelity or embezzlement or abuses of power. Look, what it boils down to is, is one of two things. Either A, Christianity sure looks like it's taken a backseat to these man-made idols, or even worse, the name of Jesus is being used and co-opted to serve, as, as Paul calls them, the weak and useless spiritual principles of this world. And neither of those is a good thing. Put simply, the credibility gap widens when our allegiances are misplaced. It widens when, when our allegiances are misplaced. Now, again, this is not about pointing the finger. I know I just said some things about how Christians are perceived. I don't want to talk about anyone else other than us. I want us to, to look in the mirror and ask how we can do better with all of this. How can we, we get our allegiances in order so that we can close the credibility gap for those that we care about around us? How can we put Christ and his kingdom first above all? Now, I struggled with exactly how to apply this message, not because there's nothing to apply, there's a lot to apply, and, and what I struggled with is trying to figure out what angle, what direction to take to bring the words of this passage to bear in, on our culture, on our time, and ultimately what I felt led to do was this. I just am going to speak, as a pastor, I'm going to speak about the things that, that God has placed on my heart for Grace Church related to this, okay? Things that I see, things that I long for, and I imagine things that you long for as well. So I'm just gonna give you three ideas, three ideas that, that I hope and pray you will talk about with your family and friends, that you'll wrestle with, that you'll discuss with your life group. I, I, I hope this is a, a beginning point for conversation for you guys because these are the things that, that I believe God has put on my heart for Grace Church to think about. So number one, number one, here's the first idea. Wealth is not your God. Wealth is not your God. 
Now, one of the most deeply entrenched ideas in our culture, you know, we live in, many of us live in the suburbs, we're a relatively affluent county. One of the most, most deeply entrenched ideas in our culture is that of wealth. Wealth is king. Now, again, wealth is made up, right? I, I was talking about, you know, paper and, and metal back in the day. Today, it's just literally numbers in the cloud, whatever that is. Like, wealth is just completely a man-made, made-up construct. It doesn't mean anything. And yet, and yet, how much of our life is controlled by it? How many of our decisions, how many of our, our, our major life factors are determined based on what wealth or the pursuit of it calls us to? How much, how much of our life is guided by the demands of money? I would argue that many of us, without even realizing it, we are enslaved. We're enslaved to the idea of wealth. Culturally speaking, we have, so many of us, bought the lie that if we just throw our bodies and our lives on the altar of the American dream, then we will finally find the significance and the purpose and the meaning and the happiness that we so long, long for, that we so desire. Christ has offered us freedom from that lie. In him, in Jesus, we have everything we need. He promised it himself. We have everything we need in him and we do not need to worry or fear because he will give us what we need. And look, we are the church. We are the hands and feet of Jesus in each other's lives. This spiritual family, there is more than enough to go around. So we do not have to live as slaves of wealth because again, Jesus has opened the door to another way to live. The credibility gap gets wider when, when, when Christians, as Paul says in verse 9, become slaves once more to idols. And for many of us, that slave, or that slave master, that idol, is wealth. So Grace Church, let's, let's release our death grip on our money. Let's show our friends and family, especially those outside of the church, that there is another way to live. That there is a way of freedom that they can experience. Let's show them by living it. Wealth is not your God, and you do not have to obey it. Okay. <clears throat> Number two. Wealth is not your God. Number two, Christ is not a label. In the 300s AD, the Roman Emperor Constantine made a fateful decision that would affect the future of Western civilization and Christianity forever. He decided that Christianity was going to become the dominant official religion of the Roman Empire. And before that time, Christians were hated, were persecuted, kind of had to keep things a little bit underground, but Constantine changed all of that. After he made Christianity the official religion of Rome, the line between what was Christian and what was Roman got really blurry. If it was Roman, it was Christian. If it was Christian, it was Roman. And that line started to disappear. Well, it didn't take long for crafty uh, politicians and business people to figure out that you could use the name of Jesus as a ticket to the top. It's pretty, pretty easy to figure that one out. You see, the idols of money and power, they didn't go away. They didn't change when Constantine made this decision. No, they were still around. They just called themselves Christianity now. And those lines were really blurry. In one form or another, this, this uh, blurring of power and Christianity and government and, and our faith, it, it's gotten blurry and it has been happening ever since. Ever since. It's happening today. I mean, shoot, 
I'm just going to shoot straight with you. People quote the Bible all the time on every political uh, side to endorse their particular cause or ideology. People use, use the name of Jesus to do that because they know it'll work. They know people will, will, will listen. It's true, the evangelical church has become enmeshed with conservative politics. That's just true. It's the way people see it. And on the other side, liberal activists, they go around saying things like, Jesus was a socialist. He wasn't a socialist. Socialism didn't exist back then. Neither did capitalism for that matter. But you get what I'm saying. People talk about our nation as a Christian nation. That phrase comes up a lot. And let me just speak to that briefly. Yes, if we are followers of Jesus, we should be some of the best American citizens there are, right? What, What were the principles our country was founded on? Freedom, justice, equality for all. If we're following Jesus, then we should be the most free, just, and equal people that we know. We should be great American citizens, but, but we get into really murky waters when we start to equate our man-made nationality with our citizenship in heaven. They are not the same thing. Don't let people tell you they are. They're not. Christ is not a label. And I believe that if we want to close that credibility gap, then we've got to be very careful, really, really attuned and paying attention to who is using his name. In Colossians, Paul says, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from what? The spiritual powers of this world, the idols, rather than from Christ. Now look, to be clear, when I say all this, I'm, I'm not saying that we all should just withdraw from the public sphere and become apolitical. No, we need to be engaged in our world. You know, we need to, we need to move into our world and, and seek to change our world. But here's what I am saying. When we're looking for which, <coughs> excuse me, which causes or leaders to support, we should base those decisions on biblical principles first, like justice and mercy and purity and love and life and compassion not on the virtue signaling or the clever slogans or the assurances of someone's faith that convince us to turn off our critical thinking. Just because it is labeled Christian does not mean that you have to worship it. Our allegiance is to Christ and his kingdom alone. That's it. Not to a a, a cause with a Christian slogan because that is idolatry. Let's get our allegiances in line. Okay, so wealth is not your God. Christ is not a label. And finally, we are not enemies. We are not enemies. One of the most discouraging things that I've heard about in recent days is the fact that there are some grace life groups, grace small groups, that have begun to splinter and break apart over political or ideological divides. This is starting to happen in our own church right now. Now look, I don't know what the conversations were that led to that place. I I don't know who was right, who was wrong. I'm not gonna speak to that, but I do know this. For a spiritual family to break apart like that, somebody, somebody was elevating the idol of ideology above the call for Christ, of Christ to love. Somebody was, was elevating that ideology above Jesus. Look, I'm not saying everybody's to blame. I'm not saying, oh, it's, it's you know, it's, we're all the problem. I'm not saying that, okay? So don't hear me yet. Someone, someone's probably right in this conversation, but I am saying 
Guys, if we want to close the credibility gap, we have got to do better as a community. We've got to start loving well. Look, we are in a time, inside and outside the church, where everybody is canceling everybody. Because you know why? Here's what it boils down to. We don't want people to change. We want them to burn, right? How could that happen in the church? We are a community of love, so let us be, be very, very resistant to that urge to cancel, that urge to cut people off, that urge to kick them out. When that mentality starts creeping into the church, our allegiances are way out of whack. And we're letting the idols of our world influence our faith and not the other way around. We're not enemies. We are not enemies. We are family. If anyone, in this divided and divisive time, if anybody is going to lead our broader community forward as a, a path out of all this, this muck and mire, it should be us. It should be the church. So guys, Grace Church, let it be us. Let's be leaders in love. Let's get our allegiances in order and let's right the ship of our vocation. Let's be the, the, the rulers of creation who bring healing back into our world. Life and, and love, all of it in the name of Jesus. And let's put those man-made idols back where they belong. I believe there's hope. I think we can do this because we have the Holy Spirit within us. And when we do, that credibility gap can start to close and the people around us may just ask the question, who is this Jesus that you follow?